0: You are listening to Studying Pixels, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan, I'm a game studies scholar from Germany. I'm Dan, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. This is for all of you out there who might struggle, and I'm saying struggle in quotation marks because I don't know how much you struggle or whether you even do. But if you struggle with depression, for example, or uh, BPD, bipolar personality disorder, OCD, ADHD, all of these fun abbreviations that we have (laughs) for afflictions that we now summarize under the term of neurodiversity. But I also want to say it's not just for you, it's also for lecturers who might struggle with it, or who might have students that they want to help out and make their classes more accommodating.
1: I am really looking forward to this episode because I think that one of the things that I've noticed, because I have, I have a couple of those acronyms that you threw out there, Stefan. <laughs> so, and uh, I think that something that I've noticed in my years of addressing them and, and going through school is that uh, most people want to help and want to be accommodating. They just don't know what certain things look like. So I, I really agree with the professors, lecturers, anybody in a position where you may need to help a student with a neurodiversity issue,
0: uh, this, is, this is for you as well. This is also a topic that has been suggested on our Discord server, because we always try to, whenever you are there try to give us feedback or some input on episodes that you would like us to do, we always take that seriously, and this is an episode that exemplifies this. If you want to give us such suggestions, you can actually do that by joining our Discord. You can just go through our website, studyingpixels.com, and then join our Discord server from there. So today, we're going to talk about the following things. We're going to address what neurodiversity means, roughly how many people are affected, and what the most common problems are. We're going to talk about how institutions and lecturers can help. And of course, we're also going to try and give tips and tools If you are neurodiverse and there are certain areas that you might struggle with. This topic, of course, is one that, as you may realize, is not directly gaming related. It is a topic that could well be a plus episode because on Studying Pixels Plus... We often do episodes that entail studying tips or tips for research and for term paper writing and such things. However, we quite consciously decided that we would make it a public one and not a plus one because of the potential public interest in this particular episode. That's why it's freely available to everyone. But if you wish to support us and if you're curious about similar subjects that might help you study, research and write... Then you can join Studying Pixels Plus by going to studyingpixels.com/plus. It's a Patreon program, and it starts at three dollars a month, and you'll get all of our episodes ad-free, a nice sticker, and all of our Plus episodes that we've produced so far. If you want to find out more, then you can go to studyingpixels.com/plus. If we're going to talk about neurodiversity, then of course we have to first clarify what we mean by the term. And I'm drawing this definition from Clouder et al. They published a study on neurodiverse students, and we read through the study and incorporated some of their results into this episode. We also read through a bunch of other material that you can find linked in the show notes. And Clouder et al., they say... Quote, neurodiversity is an umbrella term, including dyspraxia, dyslexia, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, dyscalculia, autistic spectrum, and Tourette syndrome, end quote. I think it actually basically includes all kinds of things that we would consider uh, mental illness, right? Hmm.
1: Mental illness or uh, some kind of... I don't want to use the word impairment in a negative light, but I mean, that's really what it is, is something that gets in your way compared to somebody who may not be, uh, neurotypical. The, we, the other, uh, definition or the other word that's kind of used with neurodiversity is neuroatypical. Something is not typical in the way that your mind functions.
0: Exactly. You already know, uh, you already pointed out the term impairment might be <clears throat> ableism. Uh, it's, uh, Basically, the idea of this concept of neurodiversity is to try and avoid um, pathologizing, um, to avoid stigmatizing, and to avoid being ableist. So, let's say the conventional idea of disability would be that uh, you have, there are people who have a functioning brain where everything functions as intended, where they can do the things that they want to do and so on, whether it's whether we believe in God and we say it works like God created it or whether we say the brain has objective functions and if they are disrupted in some way or they don't function properly, then they're dysfunctional and that is kind of, that's an impairment. Hmm. Now, the idea of neurodiversity is more that we don't think of it in in such a clear distinction, but rather we assume that every person's brain works a little bit different and there's like a corridor of where you are neurotypical and then there's kind of a broad range of people that are neuroatypical or if you consider it just from a broadly defined perspective of diversity every brain is kind of different in some ways and some people feel a more uh, direct impact of that or they feel um, disabled by the circumstances Mm. by the environment but the focus of this term is more like we should not so much have to treat the person and try to basically fix their brain, but we should try and fix the structure of our society in such a way that it is accommodating to all sorts of neurodiverse people.
1: I think a really good way to look at it, and this is, I, I whenever I talk to somebody who's not as familiar with neurodiversity or issues that people face, is if you put it in terms of some other kind of ailment or some other kind of impairment, right? So Stefan, you and I both wear glasses. So the idea that we are somehow less than because we can't see properly without them, that's not correct, right? We have a tool that we use glasses to get past this impairment. So it's not, there's no negative connotation. When you see somebody with glasses, you don't think, oh, what are they doing (laughs) wearing
0: these glasses? That's a really good distinction to make, because it is an impairment, since our eyes do not function to the degree they're not at 100% uh, power, basically. They don't operate ideally. So we have an impairment, but that impairment is not disabling, since we do have a tool at hand that basically compensates for it. And this entire subject of ableism is much broader than we can or have to even address uh, at this point here. But there are different ways of looking at it. You can consider it as a, uh, just a, an expression of saying we are aware, when we use the term neurodiversity, that we have to make some adjustments in our society because it is exclusive for some people or excluding towards some people that have, uh, that have whose brains function differently. Um, but you can also see it as Clowda et al. Phrase it, they say a little bit further in the text, quote, we recognize that people do have impairments, but suggest that as a social construction, academia has the means to instigate changes that mitigate many of the hindrances caused by impairment, which create disability, end quote. So we have the same logic here. Again, there is an objective impairment there, or that mm. we can consider it an objective impairment, but the question is just How disabling is that impairment? And that largely depends on how the society in which it takes place is structured.
1: And I think not something to be written off, right, or categorized in a way that just puts you in this particular bracket and then precludes you from certain areas of academia, right? There's ways that professors, lecturers, uh, administrators can facilitate some of these issues and make it so that everybody has an equitable playing ground.
0: Indeed, that would be the ideal scenario. But Mm. before we get there, we have to first describe the problem a little bit more precisely because I looked into how many people are roughly affected by this. So basically, I did some research on the question of how many students on average are neurodiverse or neuroatypical. I also looked into how many students have a mental illness on average and so on. I must say, it's super hard to find a good answer to this because there are some studies on a disability in general, I found that, according to the National Center of Education Statistics, around 19% of undergraduate students between 2015 and 16 had a disability. Now, not only is that a couple of years ago, but also this includes all disabilities. So this also includes if someone is, has a visual impairment or is blind, or if someone mm-hmm. has a hearing impairment, and that's why it's not really reliable. When it comes specifically to neurodiverse students, I only found articles that estimated the number and usually between 15 and 20%. So somewhere in that ballpark. And 15 to 20% actually is fairly high. I think it pretty much correlates with the estimation of how many people in the society at large might be affected by a mental illness. And it also means that if you are a lecturer and you think of the classes that you teach. If you have a class of around 30 students, which is normal, at least for, for the classes that I have, you can assume that there would be, a, an, on average, six neurodiverse students in that class. That
1: uh, I, I want to avoid uh, saying, you know, oh, that feels right to me, but that does feel right to me. Yeah, <laughs> because <laughs> it could well think, be. Yeah, I think that, uh, as we mentioned up top, it's a very broad categorization, right? So It's very likely that I would also say this, it's probably more likely in, I would think that universities have a higher on average number because most people who are intelligent and empathetic and who would go to university, I think are more prone to having a lot of these issues. And so it's very likely that it's actually a higher average than the normal population would be my
0: guess. I heard that as well. I found I found it in a couple of articles. Actually, the argument that said um, a lot of people who have um, who are on the on the autism spectrum or who have sure. ADHD on average have a higher um, IQ, and that might increase the chance that they are at university. Um, I didn't include it directly here in my exploration of the numbers because I don't know how reliable that is. I also know that it is also part of a stigma. Um, or part of a stereotype, I would say. And that's why we might may, might not be able to rely on it. But if we think of these 15 to 20%, we have to consider while it might seem a bit high at first, this would mean any uh, neurodiverse student. So this could also be someone who maybe has a, a, a depression or a mild case of a depression, but a diagnosed one, uh, but who's not really impaired in their studies. And you wouldn't know Often with these things, of course, you can't see um, that they are occurring, and there are there's a broad spectrum of a neurodiversity that does not directly impair the student.
1: And also, uh, there's uh, something to be said for something that you just mentioned, which is uh, not everybody is going to uh, wear a badge and raise their hand and say, "Yes, me, I have this problem." <laughs> right? Yes, there's there's certainly a, a stigma around it that may change the number. So when you say that it was difficult to kind of pin it down, I'm not surprised at all.
0: Yeah. And by the way, just if people might be confused, we mentioned up top that it also includes things like, for example, dyslexia and dyscalculia. So this is when people struggle um, writing or reading or dyscalculia, when people struggle calculating. Um, And I actually, I've also had people in my friendship circle who were affected by such things, who were at university but struggled with uh, being dyslexic, basically, and this is not as rare as we would, um, as you might intuitively assume. Now, what are the key problems that may occur? Um, Two things we have to say before we go into the problems. The first one is, in this episode, we only focus on the problems that directly relate to studying and researching, so basically academic life. Of course, people who are neurodiverse might have a plethora of other problems in their personal life and problems with their identity and friendship circles and so on. We're not going to go into any of these. We're just focusing on the academic side, on university life, basically. And of course, we also have to say, that's number two, that issues that people might have vary significantly in accordance to what kind of um, mental illness or impairment you might have. And also on your life situation, your upbringing, your social circles, what kind of support you have, how long you have it already, how well you are dealing with it. All of these factors play a role. So these problems that we describe are rather generalized, but according to the research that I've found, those are the most common ones. And they would be struggling to focus. This is, of course, something that we would most directly associate with things like Uh, ADHD, for example, struggling to focus, being easily distracted, for example, during lectures. And this is not, for all of you out there who might struggle to imagine such things, this is not the usual kind of sense of I'm in a lecture and then I'm just looking out the window and my mind is drifting a little bit. But this is really a profound struggle to focus in lectures to the degree that you really can't take much in.
1: Yeah, I think that there's the The best way to describe the difference is the person that you just described, on looking out the window and kind of daydreaming, if you snap their attention back, they're fine, right? They, they can pay attention. They might be bored, but they can pay attention. Whereas the person struggling, truly struggling to keep attention, they will be trying very, very hard to focus and they just will not be able to put pen to paper or retain information that they're hearing. It's like if you've ever uh, been tired and you've been reading and you realize that you read the same sentence four times,
0: imagine that, but with everything you're hearing. <laughs> and it just flies by because you, you yeah. can't just simply read the same sentence again because it just passes past you. Mm. Um, and of course, as you said, especially when it comes to putting pen to paper, it can um, mean that people struggle to discern what is important and what is not, that they struggle to take notes for example, in a lecture, because they can't really assess what is important and what is not unless it is specifically stated. And of course, we've got things such as feeling anxious or overwhelmed or frustrated, which can in turn lead to avoidance behavior. Like if you imagine you go to lectures and you just notice that you can't really take in the information and then you might feel ashamed because everyone else seems to be so focused and dedicated around you. So you might put yourself down, you get frustrated, so you might just feel like, maybe I just shouldn't go to the lecture. And you start to avoid things or you start to procrastinate because you don't quite know how to progress. Procrastination doesn't necessarily mean that someone's just lazy and just unwilling to do it. It might be that there's a profound problem there that hinders them in engaging with the material.
1: It's a vicious cycle too, because if you engage in that avoidance behavior, then usually you're also going to feel incredible guilt about the avoidance, which leads you to try to stop avoiding it. But then the anxiety of the thing makes you avoid it more. And then that feeds into your guilt again. And it just is this dark cloud over something that you might even say to yourself, "Why can't I just do this? It's a it's a three page paper. Why can't I just do this?" And it's uh, really, as someone who's been there, it's a debilitating problem <laughs> because you just can't rationalize. Why don't I just do it and get it out of my get it out of my day? Right? I'll just take five hours and, and finish it up. There's something wrapped up in that uh, that prospect that just immobilizes you.
0: Yeah, when you. Try and do it, and you sit down, and you have this kind of sinking feeling in your chest. Yes. And you're starting yeah. to feel like uh, anxious. Uh, that's not productive for, you know, sitting down studying or, or writing a term paper. My mom
1: calls it the dark blob of badness. <laughs> the dark, oh, that's beautiful. The dark blob
0: of blah. blah, blah, blah. I can't even pronounce it. <laughs> that's that's the real trick of it is that it's it's so insidious you can't even say Wait, it. <laughs> I have to I have to try again for if only for the sake of learning English. The dark blob of badness. <laughs> you got it. Yeah. <laughs> well, the question of course is how can institutions help? This is the most broadly conceptualized question, but it is an important one because indeed most universities do offer social services or Disability support. And they can be really helpful. Uh, For example, um, you might be able to get an extension of your deadline by default. Uh, It might be that you get more time in an exam because if we talk about such things, you know, struggling to focus or discern what's important and what's not, then you might just need some extra time to revise the questions, to just mull over the knowledge that you have at the ready to be more consciously aware of what you're supposed to put down and what not. Also, we mentioned the problem of sitting in a lecture and struggling to focus. Um, Normally, in most lectures, you are not allowed to record um, for good reason. But if you do have an acknowledged uh, disability that might allow you to actually just say uh, no I've got like a special permission I can record the lecture and I can re-listen to it later you're not allowed to share it maybe but just so that if you struggle to focus in a lecture you can put a recording device on your desk and then you can re-listen to it maybe on the bus on the way home just to internalize your knowledge or when you're at home where you can then take notes and rewind and stuff like that that can be super helpful actually it's a super useful thing if allowed at all to record lectures and to re-listen to them.
1: My, my fiance who's in her uh, doctorate program. Now she, when she was TAing for different classes, she started during the pandemic when everything was virtual. And I know that she was really thankful for the professors who allowed the virtual classes to be screen recorded or recorded by the people who were watching it virtually. And, you know, I can't, I can't speak to how well that helped, but thinking about my own experience uh, in the, in the minor times when that was allowed, especially in a class where I wasn't uh having a very intellectually good time, like my science or math classes, such a huge help to go back and say, okay, what, what did this mean? What, what did she say? How can I, how can I make this something that makes sense to me. I'll just watch it four or five times and figure it out.
0: Yeah, I actually also like doing that. Uh, When lecturers are available, then I like to listen to them on the side just to take in like the broad uh, information. And if I, of course, have to write an exam or it's something that's crucially relevant to a subject I'm currently researching, then I would re-listen to them later because I know already where kind of the highlights are. And then I would take notes on them.
1: There's something I think to be said about uh, being able to filter that and then put it into your own notes. Uh, Because, speaking as someone who listens to podcasts and YouTube videos while he plays video games, a lot of the ideas that I've kind of uh, grokked to over the years have just been filtered down from hearing TED talks and (laughs) different lectures and things while I'm, you know, grinding away in a Kingdom Hearts game.
0: And these. Basically, these, uh, let's say, uh, these permissions that you might get from turning to social services at university can even go further than that. For example, in an exam that I invigilated, I had a student who was allowed to bring her dog to the exam, which is normally strictly prohibited, but it was a therapy animal. And she would struggle, I think, with anxiety, something along those lines. But she had a dog that was specifically trained to kind of soothe her. And uh, it was just really nice to see that she was allowed to bring her dog to the exam. Because the dog would just like, you know, just chill around. And only yeah, because of the presence out. of them. Honestly, <laughs> I think everyone should do that, you
1: know. <laughs> I know. My, uh, my university, I remember there was, a, there was a girl who had a therapy dog. And whenever I was in class with her, I was so excited because I got like residual uh, therapy from the dog, <laughs> just being around this this chill golden lab who would just hang out and, you know, afterwards you'd
0: give them treats and they did a job well done. Yeah, it's uh, let them in. <laughs> it can be so grounding. It's actually the same reason for why, for example, uh, there was a huge construction going on in the house that I live in um, for a while in a neighboring flat. And I actually liked working during the construction noise because it grounds me to know that on the other side of the wall, there's someone just like hammering away. Someone just, <laughs> it's just, to them, all of these like, you know, intricate things that I might try to think over and that might, might, might be confusing at times, they're just hammering away at the wall. It's very Zen of you. Yeah, <laughs> the, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's very soothing. <laughs> the
1: end of hammering at drywall
0: yeah <laughs> now the thing is so these are all advantages no that's not that's not correct they're not advantages these are things that you can receive or special permissions that you can receive by turning to the existing social services or disability support uh, people at your university however clouder et al in their study also find that often enough students do not make use of these support services. They say, quote, a wide range of support systems and assistive technology is available, but the onus is on students to trigger this by disclosing their difficulties, end quote. And I have been wondering then, well, if these support services are available, why would students not make use of them? And I found a couple of possible reasons for why that might be the case. The first one is that there are just universities where the support services really are unavailable or where they lack funding. Uh, This is, of course, a problem, um, and not every university may be able to provide this. I think every university that I know provides such services, but I could easily imagine that there's somewhere they just can't or the, the position is not taken, you know, of the social worker or whoever might take care of these things. I think it really
1: depends on where you are. I know in the States, it's uh, it's kind of hit or miss from what I've heard because it's it's all about funding and it's all about, like you say, uh, for on a voluntary basis, who's available, who wants to do it. And sometimes uh, universities are better equipped than others.
0: Yeah, that is true. Uh, they're also just sometimes support services that are there but they're just very difficult to organize because you struggle to get hold of people you shoot emails but you don't get a reply or they've got very restrictive office hours where you need to make time if you struggle with this if you're in a situation that you say I could really use I could I, I would really like to be assessed by these services or I do have a diagnosis and I'd like to speak to them and you struggle to organize it then I would highly encourage you to ask friends or fellow students that you trust for them to maybe help you out, to help organize this so that you can get an initial appointment underway. Of course, there is also the reason, and I think that might be an important one, that some students may not want to disclose their condition. Because of course, a prerequisite is that, first of all, you have to have a diagnosis in some form. Now, I don't want to generalize this too much because there might be support services where a diagnosis is not required. But as far as I'm aware it's usually the first step that it need there needs to be some kind of medical certificate that indicates that you do have this or that affliction.
1: Or there's the daunting process of you know something is not quite right and the diagnosis process at these places can be taxing. Because I think that a lot of times something to bear in mind is that people with neurodiversity usually have Tools and tricks that they have used their entire life to mitigate the problems that they're running into. So, first of all, if you're suffering from, and I'm speaking from experience here, if you're suffering from obsessive compulsive disorder, you probably have a number of rituals or tricks that you use to feel normal, for lack of a better word. And you may not even realize that you're doing them. So, to go to First of all, it takes, it takes the wherewithal to say, I think something is wrong, and then you go to one of these services, and maybe you don't have the diagnosis, but then they start asking questions, or you, they go through the diagnosing process, and you start feeling attacked, or you start feeling abnormal or strange, and it fe- it, that
0: generates a whole other
1: host of problems, right? So there's a number of reasons why the diagnosis issue would put people off.
0: Yeah, especially if you know that you have to disclose it as well.
1: That's a big thing, yeah. Don't want to be on a list somewhere, right?
0: Yes, you don't want to be on a list somewhere or you might not want to want your lecturers to know because um, I actually, I um, called upon our community to um, basically engage in a private chat with me and tell me about their experiences with being neurodiverse at university. And I have got reports of people that said they they did not, disclose their um, their affliction or they did not disclose the fact that they're neurodiverse because they felt like they would, would maybe be treated differently or that maybe uh, lecturers might then become aware of it and uh, it might potentially even impact their future. If you think about maybe applying for a position as a student assistant, but then you have to disclose that you have, I don't know, depression or OCD or ADHD or something along those lines. um, And it might actually, that might be tough. However, on the other hand, I must say that this proper recognition of the neurodiversity at a university support service can still be extremely valuable because then you don't have to go to individual lecturers and explain to them what's going on, right? Because yeah. that really sucks. If you have to go to eight different lecturers, every single term, you have to explain to people again, why you have, why you want an extension for the deadline. Yeah, it really sucks.
1: It is. And it's exhausting. And I think that, you know, there's a, there's an old adage, if it's mentionable, it's manageable, right? And if you have If you have a name for something and you have a process by which you are able to treat it, it's not as daunting. And so I think as you just said, Stefan, if you are afraid of going to one of these these groups to get this help, think about how you're feeling now and think about how nice it would be if you didn't have to think about all that every time you go into a new situation. (laughs) Mm. Because as you just said, You could either have the conversation that I know I've had where I've asked for an extension at the end of a term because something has just caused me so much grief, or you can say, you can go into it with the, uh, you can go into that class with that professor or that lecturer understanding that that is an issue for you. And so when you send them an email, you can just say, hey, if you remember, you know, uh, I, I just may need an extension here. They'll say, oh, yes, of course, I understand. Thank you very much. <laughs>
0: exactly. I've received yeah. many of these emails myself from students who have um, an impairment or another, um, physical impairment, mental impairment, or men, men, uh, mental illness, whatever. Yeah. And it's usually a, f- it's a fairly standardized process. Um, they send me their certificate where the support services attest that this affliction uh, exists, and then I'm looking no further. Um, it's just an automatism, that you automatically get an extension, or, for example, it might say, in for someone who might have a visual impairment, it might say that this student is mm. eligible to receive all of the course material in digital form, for example, right? And then there's no arguing, there's no assessment by the lecturer themselves. That's something that I, f- I find really valuable, well, I, I don't want to judge how severely someone is impaired and whether that is sufficient to be granted an extension. I want to just get a letter that says, "Here, give the student an extension." This. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> All right, you know. <laughs>
1: well, I uh, we're going to talk about some some tips for neurodiverse students, but before we do, I, I want to just kind of tell a personal anecdote about my experience with this because I I have. Uh, pretty severe obsessive compulsive disorder. And actually, Stefan, when you and I first met, I was kind of switching up treatments. And I remember telling you how, oh, I had all these tips and tricks that I would use uh, for myself sans medicine and therapy. <laughs> and it was like, I was functional, but I was exhausted all the time because it was, it was just like, you know okay i have to go through this process of worrying about something then i have to think about all of the reasons why i shouldn't worry about it and then if you've ever heard the story of people with obsessive compulsive disorder touching the stove 5 times otherwise the house will burn it's not always that sometimes it is just you are obsessing over a particular thing with no outcome in mind or a uh, process through which to get over it in place so when i was in college I had a really awful bout of this where I was uh, that kind of vicious circle, the dark blob of badness that we were talking about was just had me over a barrel and it was about a paper. It was like a three page paper and I just could not bring myself to write it. And I had never felt this way before. And it was just this compounding problem where I couldn't rationalize my way out of it. I couldn't use logic to talk myself out of it. Uh, friends couldn't talk me out of it, right? Because whatever they would say, you know, I, I wasn't able to be as blunt as they were about it with the, just do it mentality. So it was this long and storied thing where finally I just said, all right, I'm going to reach out to my professor and have this conversation. He was very understanding. He gave me an extension. Um, but what I, what really helped me kind of get past this. And the stigma that I had created for myself is my mom, again, the, uh, origin of the dark blob of badness. She said, if your friend had a broken arm, would you be this harsh to them about the difficulties they're facing with their broken arm? And I said, of course not. And she said, so why are you being so hard on yourself about this? Why don't you go get help? Why don't you go get a cast? Like they would need and that really made it make sense to me so if you're worried or anxious about going to one of these groups or going to a therapist or whoever i strongly encourage you to think about it as a physical ailment you would not be ashamed of a broken leg you would not tell your friend that they're overreacting with a broken arm so go and do this and make your life easier Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter.
2: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
1: Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com ACAST.
0: Thank you so very much for sharing that anecdote, Dan. I'm sure and I do hope that it gives some of you out there some strength and courage And while you are doing that and while you're reflecting upon it and may take bigger steps, we have compiled a couple of very pragmatic tips and tools for you that you may be able to use depending on what kind of problems you have. So we're just kind of shooting those tips into the dark, hoping that (laughs) one of you might find them and hopefully find them helpful. So the first tip, of course, ties into what we already spoke about. If you have not done so then you should surely check whether you can make use of the university support if it is available. Because the thing is that the university support, such as extensions of deadlines or being able to bring a therapy animal to an exam or such things, they are not meant to basically make you different from the other students. They are meant to make it equal again because at the moment while you're struggling you are at a disadvantage so they are not privileges or advantages they are compensations for disadvantages that are already there in order to level the playing field again to make it fair because you might just need another half an hour for an exam for 2 hour exam everyone else needs 2 hours but you might to have to take extra time to check the spelling properly or to basically uh, mull over the knowledge that you have and select what to put down and that's why i would say make use of the services if they are there now here we come to more intricate tips the next one that i found was called stimming which comes from
1: new term to me
0: a new term yeah 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 i think this is just about really like stimulation basically like Yeah, stimulating your brain or your mind in different ways in order to increase your focus. For example, uh, I've read that you can try to perform some repetitive actions if you struggle to focus in a lecture. Uh, For example, I read an article by someone, it's also linked in the show notes, I forgot the name right now, but uh, they would bring a crochet set to class and maybe just inform the lecturer, let them know, um, I've got a, a problem focusing or something, or here's the certificate that I have from the university yes. services already, <laughs> ideally. Um, and just so you're not confused, I'm not bored. I'm quite the opposite doing this because it helps me focus. Hmm. I actually had a
1: friend who did this, uh, specifically knitting. She was a, a graduate student in my Japanese program. And I remember she at this it, it was like clockwork at the start of class, she would take out her bag. And then maybe three minutes before class ended, she would start the ritual of putting everything away. And I asked her once why she was doing that. And she said exactly this, that it helps her stay focused on actually hearing the lecture and and practicing the language.
0: Now, it does sound silly, but I've done this as well by grinding through Final Fantasy 10 Remaster. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. yeah. Because the thing is that this game, it gets super grindy at the end. And I've, I've played it on my beautiful PlayStation Vita that I no longer own. And I've, I was in a logic, an introduction, like introduction to formal logic or something like that. It wasn't when I studied philosophy. And um, I liked the lecture. It was interesting. I liked the subject. But I noticed that like halfway through the lecture, my mind would just start to switch off. I just struggled focusing. So I just started putting on my PSV Vita and just grind under the table so that the lecturer wouldn't see because I knew, of course, he would feel super offended to know that I'm sitting there playing a video game. How dare he? <laughs> well, I'm actually doing it because it helps me to focus on what he's saying, not because I want to be distracted. Um, so it kind of has an inverse effect sometimes. Doing these repetitive actions can help you focus. It's
1: funny because I've uh, we've talked before on the show about how I'll usually have a main game that I'm playing and then a grind game. And the grind game is what I use to uh, kind of focus on decompressing after work. So I'll listen to something and uh, just put on a JRPG and grind away until I go
0: to bed. (laughs) I guess it can be nice, especially since you spoke about um, OCD. And um, maybe it is exactly that kind of distribution of focus where it's just... Mm. With half a brain, you're grinding. With half a brain, you're listening to a podcast. None of these things are so involving that you would have to dedicate 100% of your focus to it. Maybe that's what makes it feel so relaxing.
1: I have a theory too. I think it's that if you you have trouble uh, focusing or if you have obsessive tendencies or things like this, if the goal isn't clear to you, it's really difficult for you to work because you can't really figure out all right, what, is it that, what are the steps that I'm taking to get to the end? But if you're grinding, your goal is to get to level 99. Or if you're crocheting, your goal is to finish your pattern that you're working on. So I think that it unlocks a kind of pathway in your brain where you say, I will have done something by the end of this, even if I feel like
0: I didn't uh, accomplish anything listening to the lecture. Yeah, plus if you're crocheting or you're knitting or something, then you might have a nice warm winter sock at the end of the term. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the next tip is also one that I discussed in a a chat interaction um, with a person that told me they are neurodiverse. And they shared this with me. um, Practicing social interactions can be really helpful, depending on what kind of uh, way, in which way you are neurodiverse. You might struggle to read emotions, for example, or to hold up conversations. Um, You can practice this by basically rehearsing things in your head or by interacting with people that you're more comfortable with, maybe before you go to university Maybe you have a roommate or a close friend, especially when it's like the beginning of the university period of your life, where you might feel very nervous and anxious about all these new people, and they might not know that you struggle with certain things, and so you might feel put on the spot or overwhelmed. It can be helpful to practice and get into the mood for social interactions. This also helps if you, if you don't have someone who's readily available to just speak to, you can also use the technique of priming by, for example, watching um, watching a comedy, watching something that you know makes you laugh or that makes you feel open and uh, basically feel like you want to socially engage. It primes your brain and it puts you into the mood of social engagement. It's the same reason for why some people, before they go to a party, why they get ready, maybe put makeup on and stuff or get dressed, they would listen to some music that pumps them up a little bit for social interaction.
1: I think, uh, it's, it's the same thing where if you practice smiling, you actually make yourself happier, right? Yeah. Because it's, it's priming your neurons to actually feel the, the happy feeling. I think the other thing I would say in this kind of priming conversation, uh, if you find that it's difficult to practice or to have these kind of in the mirror conversations for social interactions, um, I to bring it back to video games, or to TV or movies, uh, pick a character who you really like, and think to yourself, "What would they say, or what would they do in this interaction?" It is surprisingly helpful if you're if you're a little confused. Now, take that with a grain of salt. Don't pick a crass or awful character. Pick someone that you you know uh, you identify what would, with. What would Sephiroth say in what this moment? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Nothing good, I'm afraid. <laughs> Well, here we come to also further practical techniques in case you struggle with focus. This is an obvious one. Pomodoro. Uh, This is a study technique that I assume a lot of you are familiar with already. It's a technique that's supposed to help you focus. And Mm. what it means is just that you study, uh, you structure your study sessions in regular intervals. For example... A Pomodoro technique would mean you could study for 20 minutes. You do 20 minutes of high, in, highly intense focus. Don't get distracted by anything. Turn off your phone, put it to the side, put it on mute, whatever, or, or flight mode. And then after these 20 minutes, you take a 10-minute break where you deliberately step away from your work. You take a couple of steps through the room or you go outside or whatever you do. Just definitely leave the work behind for these 10 minutes. There are also some helpful apps and tools that you can use to support this structure. For example, I use an app called Toggle Time Tracker. I actually use it to track my working hours. I don't use Pomodoro myself that much, but I've tried it and it can be really nice for Mm -hmm. long tasks that you need to split up into smaller units. Um, What you can do with... I'm going to say it again just so that people can pay attention and write it down in case they want to try it out. So this is the Toggle Time Tracker TOGL toggle and you can install it on any device. It's a very lightweight simple app. I like about it that it's free. You don't have to pay. There are premium there is a premium subscription and you can get more like insights and reports and so on if you get a premium subscription, but honestly, I use it every day. I use it extensively to track all of my working hours. I've got hundreds and hundreds of working hours logged there. And I haven't had a single moment where I thought I need to sign up for a premium subscription. They're really good. It always keeps all of your timers synced. And in addition to tracking your time, you can use it for a Pomodoro timer. Like I can set a timer. I can configure how long it should be. And then it just, there's like a little timer that runs down in the corner of my screen. And then it pops up. When the time is over and it says like, hey, now five minute break, step away. And then it will alert you again when it's like, hey, back to work.
1: That is really helpful, especially it prevents burnout too. If you, uh, not just tracking your time, but kind of making yourself take a
0: break. It's a really helpful tool. If you struggle getting into things on your own, getting studying done, if if you have to study for an exam, it's dull and repetitive. You can also try something that we actually don't have on the list, but it just comes to mind spontaneously, which is Study With Me. So Mm. these would be either YouTube videos, or it could be a Twitch stream or something. We've also got a channel for that on our Studying Pixels Discord, although it's not active at the moment. Um, But we should really look into that and see whether we can make it happen, because the concept is just to make you feel like you're not alone so that you are in a chat, maybe even in a video chat with someone. Maybe they play some like lo-fi beats in the background and they kind of help you focus just by being virtually present. You can also have a chat conversation in the breaks and so on. It's
1: funny because it is kind of like an accountability measure. (laughs) I used to do that in university when, uh, you know, Me and maybe three friends, we would all go to the library and basically in parentheses, we would say, hey, do you want to sit with us so that uh, if you get up too
0: many times, we can judge you quietly? (laughs) (laughs) This is actually also really smart. Accountability measures. This can mean going to the library together, meeting up for studying. I've done this Mm. so many times. I think whenever I had really important things coming up, I had like studying groups. Or even if you do things like, for example, you might be at the phase where you have to write your BA thesis, then just meeting up with two or three other people who also have to do that, just sitting together, each writing on their own thing, just so that, one, it helps you focus when everyone else is focused, and two, in case you have a brief question or you need a brief opinion, you can ask someone in a break, what do you think of this, or I'm looking into this, or do you have a tip for this?
1: It's funny, I I call it, uh, at my job, I call it the cubicle method, which is it used to be when everybody was in the office, if you were stuck on a problem or if you were having kind of a moment where you needed that accountability, you could peer over your cubicle and say, hey, can you tell me I'm not crazy for a second? Yeah. Just let me know.
0: That can be so helpful. I do this as well when I'm working at uni and I've got, you know, we've got offices next to one another and we often, especially when it's a bit warmer, we leave our office doors open pretty much all day which is nice because you can hear the other person is like you know typing in the next room and so on. It kind of helps you focus. And if you have any kind of question or you need to clarify something briefly, you just walk over and you are just like, I'm sorry, can you can I briefly talk to you about this? And then you disrupt everyone's work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I think I think people appreciate
1: those disruptions because it it's another part of like it, it it's it's part of the workflow of uh, okay I I've reached a stopping point in my typing. Or if somebody comes in and says, hey, can I talk to you for a second? You say just a second and you finish up and then you kind
0: of take a break by helping somebody else and then you get back to it. It it makes a big difference. Yeah, it mixes things up a little bit. And if you're not in that situation that you might be able to meet up with people just like that, maybe it's related to the, to your neurodiversity, or maybe Mm -hmm. it's just not, maybe it's a pandemic, let's say, hypothetically (laughs) speaking, can happen, (laughs) such things, Um, well, There's also the way to uh, create some accountability by basically really being study buddies. Mm. For example, if you've got someone in your social circle, they don't have to study at the same university, they don't even have to study at all, but if you've got someone that you have a close link to, then you could ask them whether you can be study buddies in the sense that you meet up or you have a phone call or Zoom call or whatever, like once a month, Or maybe once a week if you need it in smaller units. And then you share with them maybe the three things that you want to get done by the next time that uh, you speak. Now, the point of this is not that there's any negative consequences attached. Like nobody wins or loses. There's no judgment involved. But the thing is that at the back of your mind, it helps you focus a little bit because you know that if you don't do this now, then you'll have to explain why you didn't do it. To your friend. Mm. Yeah. And just by virtue of that knowledge in the background, it kind of creates a regular flow in smaller intervals than just saying, okay, now go run and give me your master's thesis in half a year, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Also, here's the next tip. Get to know your individual energy flow. Because every person has their own kind of cycle of energy, throughout the day. With university, the problem is often that it crams everything into one schedule and there, for example, there are just people who can focus better in the afternoon or people who can focus better at night. And for them, it might be terrible if they have to get up at, you know, at seven in the morning to go to an 8.30 class and then just sit there with red eyes and being like, oh, I don't care about any of this. <laughs> it, it makes no sense. So, If you have the ability to structure your own uh, study sessions a little bit, then you should really pay attention to when you can focus best. For example, for me, when I can focus best in the morning after I had a shower. I know this, I'm a morning person, I get up early, I have breakfast, and then I have my shower. And then I know there are, let's say, two to three hours where I can easily put like high-intensity work, where I know that I'm going to put all of my focus into this time, I know also that in the afternoon, especially late afternoon, my focus recedes, and I'm kind of winding down. My brain's just winding down. So I will put smaller tasks and administrative tasks, like responding to some emails and stuff, I will put them more like in the late afternoon of my day. I'm adjusting my work and my studies in accordance to the energy flow that I have. It takes some figuring out, too.
1: Because you'll definitely, especially if you, if you find out you're a morning person, uh, sometimes that comes with a little bit of resentment because you go, oh man, all right, I have to be responsible and go to bed early or maybe I need to figure a nap into my day or something. Because that, that's the experience I had, which was after maybe a year or two of fighting and I went, oh damn it, I'm a morning person. All right, I'm going to... Let me let me reschedule everything to make sure that I'm getting uh, as much pro- productivity time as I can in the wee hours of the morning.
0: Yeah, I have the exact same feeling and <laughs> yeah. actually it's only gotten I've only gotten more strongly of a morning person over the course of the years. It might also be that because I've adjusted my schedule so that I go to bed at like, you know, I wind down usually at 11, uh go I actually go to sleep at 11:30. Uh and then what I do is when I wake up in the morning now, it's fairly early, and I often get like an hour of, of work in before I even have my breakfast and shower because it's just so early still. Now, if you're struggling to find out what kind of energy flow you personally have because it might feel all over the place, let me come back to the tip of toggle time tracker. <laughs> because the thing is that you can use that tool to track your studying hours. Whenever you study... You just put on that tracker and let it run in the background. Don't forget to turn it off once you're done. And then after a month or so, or maybe after three months, you'll be able to look back at the statistics and to see at which times you've been able to study most. And then you can adjust your schedule accordingly. You can maybe see, oh, apparently I have no problem studying four hours between three and what I don't know, you know, in the afternoon, in the late afternoon, then that's perfectly fine. You can do that and then you can adjust your schedule. Just be aware that there are times where your focus is going to drift. Mm. Actually, whether you're neurodiverse or not. It's always going to happen. It's always (laughs) going to happen inevitably. Focus is a limited resource. And (laughs) once it shifts, don't try and force it. Don't try and force yourself through some kind of high focus intensity task. Rather, switch to something small. For example, I like to do the laundry or I like to hoover and and do such things. When I know I can't focus at the moment anyway, I'll just get the things done that I'll need to do at other times anyway.
1: You know, it's funny. That makes me think of, uh, I can tell when Maddie, my fiance, has a lot of work to do because suddenly the house will be very clean.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Let me do the dishes real quick. Hmm. Yeah. And it's. uh, I I said once to her, like... uh, um, all right, I, I can tell that you have something due because, uh, you know, everything is spotless. And, I, and she got done with it and I said, all right, there's nothing else to clean here. So you got no excuse. Like go, <laughs> go, back, to, go back to writing whatever you were writing.
0: <laughs> but isn't there still a spot <laughs> on the ground?
1: <laughs> nope, it is. I could eat off any surface in this house. Go write your paper.
0: <laughs> of course, it is also really important that you develop steady and healthy habits and a tool that can help you with this. Is Habio, H I B I O, Habio. It's an app. We're now coming into the domain of more like uh, sophisticated, but also uh, pay apps, like Mm. apps that are more pricey or that have subscriptions attached to them. Habio is something that a person that is neurodiverse recommended to me and said that this is something that I should really mention on the show. So I looked into it, I researched the app a little bit. It's specifically caters to people that struggle to develop habits or people that get overwhelmed easily because they've got so much to do and they can't they don't can't figure out where to start habio it helps you assess your goals and it designs a structure for you uh, that works with your schedule it can be used for, if you want to do fitness regularly, if you want to go to the gym regularly, you can say, I want to reach that or that weight. That's like my ideal thing in that, in that time frame. And then it will suggest to you, yeah, then you have to go to the gym three times a week on these and these evenings, something like that. But you can also use it, of course, to put in regular intervals of study and of focus. While it is helpful... It also is pretty expensive at around $15 a month. So you might want to ponder whether this is something that you need. There's certainly also a free trial to check out. So if you're curious, this is Habio, H-I-B-I-O. H-A-B-I-O. If you
1: haven't tried this, then I suggest that any any of you listening will probably find that it's worth the time and money just because of the gamification element of it. I think that if you ever struggle with habit forming or, uh, you know, you want to, you want to stick to the gym. For example, for me, sticking to the gym is a lot easier with my Fitbit because I get to see how I'm progressing and it feels like a game to me. It feels like I'm grinding on my own body. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that, that is a big help to me. So yeah, Definitely. Try the free trial, because if, you, if you've if you had success in that area before, see if it'll work with this. Because uh, I'm actually thinking I might use it to try something here.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, feel free to use it and report back on whether it actually has uh, helped yeah. you. Because I, I only know from a second-person perspective, basically, that it can be a helpful app. Um, I also want to briefly address the matter again of recording lectures or listening to material, because um, the next tip is that everyone, of course, is different in the way they learn and in the way they take in information. This also goes for uh, neuroatypical or neurodiverse people. Now, sometimes it might be hard for you to focus on reading. Uh, For me, I can say that I just read so much that when I don't have to, I prefer not to read. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, don't yeah. mean, I don't mean I don't want to like, enjoy the information or the experience of reading, but just looking at either a screen or printed out paper with letters on it is something that I do hours, many hours a day. And um, sometimes it can really help to have like a good text-to-speech app. That just simply makes it possible, for example, if you struggle to take in information or if you sit over a textbook or an important piece of writing that you have to get information from, you struggle to get through it, maybe just take a walk and have uh, and, and listen to it. There are several paid apps that you can use. Speechify is one that's often recommended. I know Voice Dream Reader, which is also very convenient. I've actually had mm. entire PhD dissertations read to me through voice Dream reader. But honestly, the way that I prefer by, at the moment, and that I think is the most convenient, you know, if you have an iPhone, it does have a wide selection of accessibility features. And one of them is actually voiceover. Many people don't make use of this, but it's really practical because it's just simply your <laughs> iris reading out uh, the whatever is on screen. So What I've set up is that if you go into accessibility settings and voiceover, you can configure it. So if you swipe down with two fingers from the top of your screen, it will just read out whatever is there and it will continue going if it's in the same document. And that's what I do often if I have to, for example, go through lots of articles in order Mm. to, let's say, hypothetically, I had a podcast and needed to prepare a show (laughs) on on tips for neurodiverse (laughs) students and I needed to read a couple of articles. Uh, Yeah, then I would just have that read out to me while I can, for example, do the chores and then I can afterwards go back and highlight the most important information. It's
1: so helpful. It's why I love audiobooks so much. And obviously not every, uh, not every academic article that you might need to read is going to have somebody on, uh, on audible reading it to you. But I will say that I think that, um, I, I know a lot of people, myself included, who grew up loving reading and then got to university and did exactly what you described, which is read so much that the thought of reading in your leisure time is like, it's, it's something that's so foreign to you at that point. So a good way to get back into it or to help out with articles is having it read to you and doing something else. Cause it, it saved me a lot of, uh, of I I'll say personal grief with not wanting to read as much. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah i actually also primarily read things like prose and stuff uh, or yeah. classics i read slash listen to them because it's a lot more convenient then i can just lay down i can fall asleep i can drift off while doing so without having to sit there and be like now after reading all day i'm like oh my free time finally <laughs> I'm going to i read. Book up the pick <laughs> up a different <laughs> book <laughs> <laughs> well here's a last tip for you out there <clears throat> Um, for neurodiverse students, if you feel generally uh, generally distracted or low, then one app that I found that's supposed to be pretty helpful as well is Day One. It's a journaling app. Uh, this uh, app is basically there to overcome an important obstacle. You know, when you are... Often you recommend it. do a journal. You know, a journal is good for you. It helps you reflect on the day and center yourself. That's nice and all, but if you open up some kind of app or if you start writing on a piece of paper and it's just empty and you have to think of what to write down, it can be really difficult. A, a problem
1: in and of itself, almost. Yes. At that point, yeah.
0: <laughs> and then suddenly you think, like, oh God, what am I? What was important about my day? Should there have been anything important? My day was kind you of know, boring. You know what? And
1: I'll, I'll talk about how I've I've changed journaling here in a second. But I used to get anxiety about like, oh, how is this? How are you supposed to write a journal? Should I be? Writing it as if I'm speaking to somebody, or should I, you know, should I be writing it as if someone is going to read this? How am I supposed to write
0: this? And then you Google like how to write a journal. To write journal, and then it yeah. becomes its own project. Yeah, and then and then you Google, and then the only answers you find is like it's up to it's individual, it's yeah. up to you, <laughs> and you're like Come no, on. no. <laughs> well, the nice thing about Day One as an app, and that is just Day One as one word. Is that it gives you specific prompts. It would, for example, ask you name one goal that you wish to achieve this month, and you just you know start writing. And you can make it as long or short as you like. You can include, of course, texts, but also photos and videos and PDFs. <coughs> but only if you have a premium subscription. We come to subscriptions again. Um, it is though pretty affordable. It's uh, two ninety per month build annually so you it's basically get one payment yeah i mean 2 dollars90 is actually um pretty doable it's one of the cheapest subscriptions in the world of the digital age it's also something that you can
1: definitely it's let me put it this way it's harder with things like habio i would imagine to continue the habit forming regimen without the kind of gamified version that they have there it's it's sort of like Fitbit like i i, I mean obviously i could go to the gym without my fitbit but i am losing something kind of the the drive for me to go there whereas with day one you can learn good habits and then say okay i'm gonna not use the subscription anymore
0: actually that reminds me i've had exactly this problem because i do wear an apple watch and i track all of my you know burn calories and it will make me happy when i fill my rings and then i started doing uh martial arts i started doing uh karate and I noticed, though, the problem is that I can't wear the Apple Watch in training. It might get damaged. Oh, yeah. Ah, okay. And that hurts. But then I programmed a shortcut uh, for myself so that I can just log my training and it will automatically enter the estimated amount of calories that I will have burned. So when I come out from the out of the dojo, it will then say like, hey, you filled your rings. <laughs> I I did the exact same thing where I went on a hike and I realized
1: I didn't have my Fitbit. And I was like... Well, what's the point of this hike like completely yeah. missing
0: that <laughs> <I> <laughs> exercise go is good home. no matter what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, shall we move on to our very last and final section? Yes. That is what can <clears throat> lecturers do? Because these all were tips for you out there to um try and improve the situation that you're in, or to find a pragmatic workaround for issues that might be troubling you. But of course we're talking about a bigger problem. And one big issue is that, first of all, lecturers at university need to acknowledge that there is a problem with many students being neurodiverse in one way or another. And that, not, that is not in itself the problem. The problem is rather that the lessons are not sufficiently inclusive in the way they are designed. According to Clouder et al., again, a majority of lecturers is either unaware of the need to be inclusive or they actively refuse to do so. And that is, of course, a problem. Because the thing is that I looked into what lecturers can do and most of these measures to make classes more inclusive, they are just good teaching. And uh, (laughs) this is as it often is accessibility is not so much a thing that's just meant for, oh, there are like a, a couple of, let's say, out of the ordinary folks, I'm using air quotes here, who need extra help. No, no, it's about designing your class in a way that's generally accessible and approachable for people. I know this is hard. I, I'm, I don't mean to judge my colleagues all over the world. I know it can be tough to do so, but there's some easy, easy things you can do. For example, first of all, actively starting to think about accessibility, just taking it into account when you design your classes or when you provide the material, in which form do you provide the material, and so on. You can also help people by giving a very clear overview at the beginning of each session of what the session is about, what you're going to discuss. And you can then do a summary at the end of the session of the most important points that have been discussed. This can be really helpful for people who struggle to discern, who might sit in a class and a seminar and be like, "Oh, this was all very interesting. I've got like 5,000 interesting things that I heard, but I'm not really taking anything away from it."
1: I uh I do this at my job when I have to teach somebody something. I call it bookend teaching, where you are you can call it road mapping whatever you want, but I like bookend because you start with what they're going to learn, you teach, and then you wrap it up and say, this is what we did so that it's sandwiched in this nice little package.
0: I have to also say, I have to self-reflect, of course, as a lecturer, and I can get, I have, I, there's still room for me to improve in this domain as well because I uh, I do have to pay attention to make sure that at the end of every uh, class or at the end of any, any like kind of unit that we talk about, that I give concise summaries of the important things, important takeaways. I mean, I think it's it's probably, and I don't want to
1: speak for you, but I would imagine Stefan, it's good for you too uh, as a yeah. lecturer, where you say, "All right, now we're
0: done. <laughs> I, I, here's here's the summary. Now on to the next thing." Exactly, because it it avoids this kind of problem that the class just goes on. Until people start packing up stuff, basically. <laughs> <laughs> the classic, all right, class is
1: over because everybody's taking their book
0: bags out. <laughs> yeah, and then just as a lecturer, you're also like already packing your stuff because you know in 10 minutes you have to be in the next class, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, also really important is to visualize properly. Uh, this can be a struggle, um, especially for people who are maybe not that technically apt, <laughs> but the thing is that presentation slides, and I'm talking about lecturers using presentation slides, are like like 80% of like uh presentation slides I've seen are absolutely horrible. <laughs> because <laughs> the thing is that they often are overcrowded with information. This is a problem if you've got students or if you have to assume that there are some students who struggle discerning what's uh, like the key parts of the lecture. It's better to use the presentation as to what it is for which is to illustrate the points to give another kind of stimulus to the points that you're making and to just only put the very key points on your slides don't put like a super long pull quote on there that basically covers the entire slide there's a
1: uh i don't know if this is a official statistic but we throw it around at my work all the time which is um we we only retain about twenty percent of what we learn in yeah. any given uh, you know instance of a lecture or training or whatever it is that you're going through. So if you want to bump those numbers up, make it bullet points so, so that people have clear takeaways from
0: the lesson. Exactly, and so that people might be able to look at the slides afterwards. <clears throat> also, really helpful if you do use slides in a lecture, make them available. To your students, I know that there are lecturers who categorically do not do this because they say students have to take their own notes. But it can that really be me help- crazy. <laughs> yeah, it can be really helpful for preparing for an exam, or maybe for students who struggle to take their own notes to get the lecture slides so that they can afterwards revise and then maybe take their own. I've seen many students take their own notes on these slides that they yeah. have, where they just so that they, they can kind of attribute their own takeaways from what's being said to the things that are on the PowerPoint slide.
1: That's how I thats how I found out that I learned the best, was taking the information that I was given and then kind of transposing it into my own words and saying, okay, I've looked at the PowerPoint and then these are my notes from the PowerPoint.
0: <clears throat> yeah, I also got one thought from a confidential chat as well. And when I say confidential, I mean the identity is confidential, not the content of the chat itself. Um, I've of course asked whether it's okay, and the conversation was <laughs> deliberately because they knew um, that we're going to have a conversation about this on the show. Uh, I've one important thought for people who are maybe in an administrative position or in an organizational position at an institution. It can be really helpful to limit the amount of exams that take place within a certain time frame, because I've heard that. One of the things that are really tough is when there are like two exams a day. Um, Ideally, I I mean, I've suffered from this as well. I remember that when I actually, when I had my exam, uh, when I became a nurse, because I I don't know whether I've ever spoken about this on the show, but I'm a trained nurse as well. And uh, we had like, at at the end, we had like an oral exam with three parts. You needed to basically... Go into a room, and then you needed to pull out an envelope, and there would be a question, and you've got one minute to think, and then you have to answer. And that you'll have to do in three different subjects over the course of one day. So you'd basically be called in in the morning. You'd start at 8 o'clock. You have your first session, and then you have your next one at 11, and your next one at 3.30 or something. So you're Sounds basically like a nightmare. It, it was a nightmare. You're like you're hanging around the school like all day. Mostly it's downtime. Oh. It's just ample opportunity for anxiety. And yes. then you're just That's sitting in the corridor <laughs> munching on a pretzel because you feel ill. And then I just like, okay, just call me in already.
1: <laughs> the true, the true test is is uh, can you do all of this? Uh, can you do all of this while you yourself feel terribly,
0: terribly ill? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and the thing is, when it comes to exams, I know, of course, that there needs to be some kind of pragmatic scheduling, and that's why they can't be spread out equally uh, all the time. But we have to also make sure that we avoid these extreme stress phases of like an exam week, where it's like, okay, now you've got like three days and, um, you know, like one or two exams every day. Well, it's just that's going to drain everyone, anyone, and literally everyone, uh, everyone and lecturers. Yeah. Yes, it's yeah. it's
1: such a, and I think that so many, so many lecturers and people in the old guard of academia, and I'm sure this is true in Germany too, uh, feel like well we did that so you must do it, and you just got to think like no no we don't have to do that we could we could be relaxed and not completely drained of our energy at the end of the term. We could also do it that way. Yeah, we can We yeah. can do that,
0: but we can yeah. also change it, you know. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> right. Uh, this is not we a don't natural have to law. suffer. <laughs> <laughs> it's not gravity. Um, <laughs> so the last thought that I wanted to bring in here is a quote by Clouder et al that I found pretty striking. I noted it down for the end of the episode. They said, quote, a major catalyst appears to be the creation of a trusting An inclusive environment, tolerant of difference, that does not need labels, adjustments, or special measures that will allow all students to flourish. End quote. And I think this is very much what I'm trying to communicate um, not only to the students that we've mostly been speaking to, but also to lecturers. If you create uh, conceptualize your classes in a way that they are inclusive and accessible. That will really be beneficial to everyone involved because it will, even people who might not be neurodiverse might still appreciate to be able to have access to the slides. Accessibility and inclusivity are really matters that are beneficial for everyone. And that's the best reason why you could start thinking about this today. Thank you all very much for listening to this episode. I hope that it was helpful and informative. If you've got any further tips or experiences to share, please feel free to do so by going to studyingpixels.com contact. And of course, if you want to support us in making this show happen, then you can subscribe to Studying Pixels Plus by going to studyingpixels.com plus. We'll see you all next week.